Welcome to Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics. That's comic books, everybody. This is the only podcast in human history where two brothers and really just two people talk about comic books. You'll never find another podcast where there's two people talking about comic books. Don't even bother looking. This is the only one. I am one of your two hosts, and I am a brother of the other person, and my name is Will Hines. I'm Kevin Hines, and I have nothing to add. So here's the deal. We do this podcast where we talk about comic books. This is a mutants and mailbag episode. Kevin and I are working our way through the original Chris Claremont run of X-Men because we're idiots and have never read it before. Mm -hmm. And yet we are big comic book fans and big Marvel fans, but have never read the X-Men, which is sort of like saying you love mob-based television shows, but have never seen The Sopranos. So we're trying to make up for that by doing these episodes where we go through some of the early episodes. I've only seen a few episodes of The Sopranos. <laughs> That'll be our next podcast. You got to see The Sopranos. And um, and we also catch up on email because we're really fortunate to be getting a lot of email, which we love. You can email us screwitcomics at gmail.com. And, so, and the reason we're doing it this way is every other episode, we are going over the superior Spider-Man. Um, and I forget how this happened, but we want to devote those whole episodes to the Spider-Man story. So we are relegating our mutants and mailbag stuff to their own little episode which is this right kevin am i saying yeah i think it happened during our interview episodes like we would just run out of time for mail and then feel like our episodes would be like two hours long if we wanted to also do mail so we started doing doing mail only episodes but i think those are sort of skippable if you don't email us i mean i think they're fun and interesting but i think they're the most easily skippable so this makes these episodes gotta have them episodes these are must listen episodes yeah you know that um, they are getting like reaction on social media that our other episodes don't like. I mean, this is dumb to say, but the X Men has a passionate fan base. If you say yeah. we're talking about the X Men, there there is a large contingent of mm-hmm. comic book fans who look up that would not look up otherwise. Yes, our main episodes about a popular run of a popular character aren't as good or aren't as popular aren't doing as well as our half cover one of the most popular runs of all time. Yeah. Um, uh, but which makes sense. Makes complete which totally sense makes like sense. This. Everything we do is dumb, and we are not savvy, and we are our own worst managers. But well, um, I mean, the thing is, when we finish the Superior Spider-Man season, which yeah, I don't know, because we only do it every other week, it will take a while. Uh, we'll still be doing. We'll probably still be doing these X-Men mutant mailbag ones until yeah. we get to a certain point. So this will outlive the current season. Uh, I don't know. I don't know when we're planning to stop the mutants and mailbags. I don't know I don't how know far either. we're going to go. At least through the burn issues, and then we'll feel it. Uh, out from there. Um, yeah, our whole goal is to read through the issues that John Byrne drew. Kevin and I are big John Byrne fans from his run on Fantastic Four, uh, right. which in fact was sort of like the first thing that Kevin and I read when we were kids. Yep. Like as it came out and stuff like that, we read it together. So John Byrne is like really special to us. And so even though Claremont is the architect of the modern X-Men and we respect that and love that, John Byrne is kind of the carrot that drew us into those. Mm-hmm. So although right now we're still mostly in the Dave Cockrum issues, the da- artist Dave Cockrum. That's right. Today, we're today we about, get to the very yeah. first John Byrne issue. Right. What are we talking about? Issues 104 to 108? Is that it? Uh, well, it's 104. Yes. Okay, yeah. 104 to 108. 108 is done by Byrne. One of them is done by, it's a fill-in issue. And the other three Mantle? are, uh, uh, Mantlo wrote it, yes. Uh, the other three are Cockrum drawn. So Mantlo um, did the fill-in issue. So the, well, there's one issue that does Cockrum and Claremont just do the framing sequence for. We'll talk about that in a second. Okay, um, so we're going to get into those issues. Let's let's do it. So Kevin, right. what's the high level, just high level, what do we cover here in these issues? 
104 through 108. 104 through 108. So uh, we just left off with the X-Men having fought the uh, the X-Men who are on vacation, uh, right. fighting uh, Juggernaut and uh, Black Tom, I think his name was. Yeah. And now they are uh, attacked by Magneto, who is... The classic X-Men villain. Yeah, the X-Men villain. He's the Joker uh, to their Batman. Yeah, I think he already was the big one. He doesn't have quite have the depth that he will in later years that Claremont's going to give him. He's still sort of a... Generic, he still refers to himself twirling. As, yeah, he, he's the leader of the evil mutants or whatever. Like, <laughs> any group that declares what side they're on in the title is like, okay, I guess you're the bad guy. It guys. sounds fun, though, you know? Yeah. Hello, welcome to the evil mutants. Yeah, yeah. Very Slytherin. Um, yeah, it, it never this makes sense a- to me when the bad guys <laughs> call themselves bad. I love it. Um, uh, but yes, yeah, they, they're, they're gonna they're gonna fight Magneto in this. There's gonna be a fill-in issue. They're gonna go to space and meet the uh, Star Jammers and and the uh, yeah, Galactic. A- what are they called? The the uh, Imperial Guard. This is a very complicated series of stories. Like I read mm-hmm. them twice and I had trouble keeping track of certainly the number of characters is huge. I couldn't keep yeah. track of like who the star jammers were and like who the Imperial guard were. Some of them I recognized, some of them I didn't. It and there's crazy. like secrets revealed about them. I, so I barely knew who they are. And then there's twists. It's like, it's a lot. Uh, yeah, when the Star Jammers show up, there's almost, they're brought in as if like we know them already. And I know them already from other comics I've seen where they've shown up. But at this point, they're brand new characters. Yeah, there's, this is the thing that Marvel, I guess maybe all comics do, but I only know about it when Marvel does it, which is like, oh, good. It's the new property. And that's like this established group of heroes way of introducing a new comic. But you, the reader, are like, who? Who cares about these guys? It, it's also, uh, comics are definitely now in an era where there's, it seems like new characters are are far and few between and there are a metric ton of new characters since we started reading this. I mean, half the X-Men are new characters. Yeah. And they keep fighting. I mean, they're about to go to space and meet all new characters. Everything is new. The villains space. are all new. The, the cavalry that arrives to help them is all new. Yeah. This is not a Captain Marvel story. This is all new stuff. Yeah. It's it's insane Doesn't how it, much new stuff. And it's, it's great. I mean, and that stuff's still around and still used and still it is great. by... Uh, it's, a, it's a little dense for my taste, and I'm pretty good at, like, managing lots of information. But but I, I do love the kind of creative, yeah, let's do it. Let's make stuff. Because I, I feel like that's missing so much from so many superhero stories. Kevin, you, uh, I'll say this, and you tell me if this is true. My, Wrong. Okay, let me just say the opinion. All right, sorry, all right. I feel like you know a trap mm-hmm. that Marvel easily falls into is just reusing all the old Kirby and Ditko mm-hmm. characters. Sure. Um, you know, maybe in a creative way, maybe not. I mean, the Superior Spider-Man is doing that, but like, I hunger, I hunger for like Ditko character. I said Ditko, Kirby and no, Ditko. I think you said Kirby. Um, I just wanted to yell wrong. That's okay. I agree. I agree with that instinct, and um, I hunger for like people who are as bold as Kirby was easier for him to do it. It was a blank slate and Ditko who just like boldly make their own people and make big swings and yeah. Claremont and or Cockrum are doing it. So well, it's a very exciting. There's also a thing though. that's uh, It's not like making new characters is easy. Kirby made it look easy. Ditko made it look easy, but you know, there were, there aren't a lot of new characters that get made that who cares? about yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, I remember reading Spider-Man comics in the 
late eighties, early nineties, I guess. Yeah. And they were making lots of new characters and most of them, I, I don't care about them. Yeah. Like Cardiac uh, who shows up in the superior Spider-Man was a new character. And it's like, I don't care about him. There's a guy yeah. slide who could slip around. Who cares about him? There's <laughs> a rocket racer. Nobody cares about him. Yeah. And I, and I don't know if those creators were like, I know this one's not that good. I'm going to do it anyway. Or if they really thought they were good characters. Yeah. They, they probably did. Or Puma was a Spider-Man. Uh, I remember Puma. Really I remember anymore. Puma. Yeah. Now what, um, what do you think it is? Like, Here's a, I know what we want to say is the emotional idea, the depth of the, of the concept, you know, that, that will factor into whether a character is remembered. But I think a lot of it is, is the costume cool? Mm -hmm. And like one advantage that Claremont has is Dave Cockrum is designing the visuals and sure. he's, and this, that's one of the takeaways I have, and I'm going to sound like an idiot is Cockrum's visual designs are incredible. Sure. And he's followed up by John Byrne, who's also really good at that. Yeah. It's like, like John Byrne is a slouch at character design in this epic run we're not going to cover the iron fist issues that debut Sabretooth, but Sabretooth looks cool Sabretooth looks great i mean the vindicator or whatever his name is the alpha the head of alpha yeah. flight is it vindicator i, th uh, I think so um looks great that costume is incredible yeah. john Byrne creates good looking uh characters so he's good at costumes too so if that's your second tier costume creator you're, in, you're, good, uh, you're in a good, we lost Cockrum and we have to settle for John Byrne. <laughs> yeah, you're in good shape. You're in good shape. I mean, the new X-Men look cool, right? Like, yeah. just like the Fantastic Four looked cool. Like, for all the problems with those early FF stories, man, they look great. I think costumes are good, but I think there's also the aspect that the X-Men didn't have that much good stuff before, right? So it's not crowded. Yeah, so when when the Starjammers show up, it's not like, well, the Starjammers are cool, but they're not as cool as... The Inhumans or whatever. Toad. You know, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't even know the characters that sort of like the Sentinels and Magneto and Juggernaut are all that really came out of the early eras that I think stuck. Like Mimic, Mimic was a character. I don't know if you know this character. Mimic, I don't know Mimic sort of has yeah. all the powers of all the X-Men. I know the horror movie where the cockroaches. Yeah, um, but it's like, who cares about this? Like, there's lots of yeah. characters like that that sort of mm -hmm. came up Yeah, uh, uh, that were disposable. So when Claremont and Cockrum and Byrne start creating new things. It's like, oh yeah, this is better than what existed before. But if you're doing a Spider-Man comic and you're creating a new villain, you're it's got to be someone who stands toe to toe with the Green Goblin, Doctor Octopus, yeah. the Vulture. Venom. So unless you come up with Venom, right? It's not gonna. It's gonna be tough. It's gonna be a tough thing. Um, yeah, it is. So, but I, appre I appreciate the effort. And mm -hmm. uh, in this run of X-Men comics, they're they, I, I I'm excited to see these new things. Is Moira Mattaggart new in these issues or is she someone who's been I think been she's in... new. I think she's new. Okay. So all the Irish stuff, Claremont seems to love Irish stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, also keep in mind, I don't know anything about the X-Men. So we don't know where is. For a fact, I don't know for sure, but I think Moira Mctaggart, it's, she's certainly presented as a new character. And even when we get her backstory, it's presented as unknown to the reader backstory. Okay. Um, another thing that happens in the stretch of issues is we wrap up the, what previously has just been teased as a subplot, which is Professor Xavier's nightmares. Right. He's been having crippling psychic nightmares that are so powerful he can't use his abilities. Mm -hmm. And But that's been just like a little thing we check in on. He's having nightmares of like aliens and space and stuff. And yeah. the, the story we're, we cover in these issues tells what that is and ends it. Yeah. It's about uh, Lalandra, the space princess of the Shiar, Shirar. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's very it. confusing. If I sum, I'll try to There's summarize. There's a couple it. R's in there. Yeah, can you uh, summarize it? Like, what's happening? Well, no, I can't. But uh, a, a space princess basically has somehow made mental connection with Xavier 
for vague reasons yeah. uh, and goes to him for it, help. It is tied to some old X-Men adventure. Right. Like yeah. in the, like she was in space during some adventure that was in the 60s, like mm-hmm. the issue numbers, the 60s, not yeah. the decade, uh, and made some connection that are retroactively deciding with Xavier. Yeah. And now that has been activated because she is in distress. It sort of makes them seem like they're soulmates. Yeah, the they're mind, like in love least. kind of, yeah. Yeah, he seems to love her immediately. She shows up for help, but then gets kidnapped by the Imperial Guard and the X-Men, uh, led by Phoenix, go after her to save her. And the Imperial and Guard, I don't know if you know this well, are based on the Legion of Superheroes. I did not know that. Yeah, Cochran worked on the Legion of Superheroes before this. And even some uh, Nightcrawler was a character he had pitched for, a. Uh, it's mentioned in the back of the epic volume that uh, we're reading from. Uh, Nightcrawler was supposed to be in this uh, Legion of Superheroes spinoff that he was working on that got sort of turned down. Um, but yeah, but uh, but if you look at the Imperial Guard and if you know the Legion of Superheroes, which I do a little bit, not yeah, a lot. I, I don't too much. Um, they're like, all the big ones are there. Like uh, uh, um, the main one, Gladiator with the Mohawk. is Him I know because he was in FF. But he's like Mon L, who's like the Superman type character from Legion of Superheroes. Okay. okay. There's a giant guy who's Colossal Boy or whatever. The one that uh, wears like the wolf costume is Timberwolf. So oh. they're all sort of like Very this direct is like analogs. one of those things where it's like oh the X the the Justice League is fighting an Avengers analog. Yeah. Look uh, uh, like this the sinister. Uh, Squadron Supreme, or like, oh, that's the Justice League, but in the Marvel Universe. Yeah, this is the Legion of Superheroes, but in the Marvel Universe. Oh, interesting. Um, they do seem like fun characters. The Star mm-hmm. Jammers, I'd never seen them before. The Star Jammers are separate from the. Uh, they're not Legion of Superheroes offshoot. They're their own thing. Oh, the Le- The Star Jammers are just the pirates that show oh, up. Oh, so you're talking about the Lelanders? Giant group of uh, uh, vil- like when they first show up in outer space. There's like okay. sixty. Superpowered right. This is the confusing that, part. Like, per, yeah, the star, the Princess Lalandra, who's a princess and an admiral, mm-hmm. is. And Will doesn't in, understand that because he doesn't think women can lead armies. I don't understand how women can be in power and respected. So that seems mm-hmm. a lot for me to accept. But, mm-hmm. um, she is in trouble because her canceled. brother, the emperor, he just got canceled. Well, sorry. <laughs> so exciting. It's so exciting to be canceled. Her brother, the emperor, that does make sense to me. Um, <laughs> sure, is evil. Because he's going after some absolute power event that's going to happen. Yeah. She stood up to him and he declared her a traitor and ordered his army to turn on her, the ad- mm-hmm. the former admiral. Yep. So now there's like a civil war amongst this alien race, which I have never heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, and the good guy, star princess, is reaching out to Xavier for help against her evil emperor brother. So the X-Men use a Stargate powered by the suddenly almost omnipotent Phoenix mm-hmm. um, and reach this alien planet. And there's like 80 bad guys, none of which right. I've heard of. And those are the, those are the ones guard. that are Legion of... Okay. The, yeah, that's the Imperial Guard. They're led by Gladiator, who is okay. uh, still to this day portrayed often as a guy who's like, I follow the Emperor, good, bad, or in, like whoever he is, I serve at the pleasure. Of yeah, the, he does uh, the... He follows yeah. the Commander-in-Chief. He's like, hey, I I don't necessarily agree with what I'm being told to do, but it's my job to do yeah. this. And he's in charge of the Imperial Guard. The Star Jammers are pirates. They're like the cool. They're like Errol Flynn types. Yeah, and and so they seem. They're uh, kind well, of I'm guardians sure. of the galaxy a little bit. 
Yeah, they're a little bit like the Guardians of the Galaxy. They sort of just they sort of butt into this affair because they want the right thing to happen. They don't care about law. They care about right. They're chaotic good. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, the Star Jammers show up. I also don't know them. Um, yeah, I know and- them from. I've read some X Men comics later on where they show up. Like Corsair, the leader of the Star Jammers, is Scott Summers' dad. Yeah, that's revealed in the middle of this battle with a hundred characters going on. It, yeah. Phoenix reads Corsair, head of Star Jammers, mind and realizes it's Scott's dad. Yeah. Scott doesn't realize it. He doesn't recognize his son. I guess his son is dressed up like a I mean, I think they got separated a long, long time ago. Um, also, Havoc isn't there for any of this. So Scott's brother's not a part of this at all. So it's just, it's confusing. But um, we get a big battle, is what happens. And saying, where's the younger brother? Doesn't get the older brother gets to go to space and meet Makes sense dad. to me. Makes sense to me. Um, so, but now what are some, I I actually, I mean, that's kind of fun, big, complicated story, lots of characters, but I don't think of that necessarily, I guess, I guess epic battles are part of the X-Men lore, but I was more focused on like how the characters are evolving and how Claremont's handling of the stories is evolving. Like it's getting, Mm -hmm. there's, there's more moments of humor, uh, Nightcrawler is really evolving as a character. I think he's becoming really quite funny and bold and kind of a quiet hero. Like when the big guns are overwhelmed, Nightcrawler is able to come in and help here or there. It's kind of fun. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Yeah, I also don't think of space as a big part of the X Men, though it is a recurring thing that like this Shar Shiar. I can't say it. Uh, this Empire, this Galactic Empire, is something that they're connected with, and they get stories involved all the time with. Uh, I just also never realized it was this early in the run that they went to outer space. Yeah. Like we're basically a year, not a year, but like 12 issues or so into the the new run. Yeah. And this storyline is happening. So it's like part of their DNA. If it's that early, you can't shake something that ha- that this big that happens this early. We're, so we're learning is, that, right? Like they took a yeah. lot of big swings early. Like Phoenix was established so early. The mm-hmm. Star Jammer space link here is established. Like we're a year into the new X-Men. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, it's bi-monthly, so it's probably two years. But but yeah, yeah. It's, it's 12 issues. It's very quick to have these sort of what I think of as like big storylines already happening. I wonder how it was doing at this point. Like was it selling like crazy? Like was it a hit right away? I don't, I don't know. I do know when John Which, Byrne takes over and they get a, you get a faster penciler uh, after like he's on the book for like maybe six issues and then it goes monthly. And that's also when Jim Shooter takes over, though. I think that's probably a coincidence. It seems like Jim Shooter takes over and it's just been made monthly, but uh, it must be because it's a hit. And also what I was reading, and maybe this is just in the back of the epic volume, none of this is like deep secret stuff, is originally... The X-Men comic was going to keep being reprints and they were just going to do quarterly giant size Ekmans about this new team. Okay. But I think right away it like did well enough. They're like, oh, let's put these in the regular issues. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. Rather than do reprints. And uh, it must be successful. It yeah, must have been be. successful. It must have been successful almost immediately. I got to imagine. It probably looked great on the stands. Anyone who picked Anyone who picked this up off the stands in like the late 70s is what this is. It must have been one of the best things Marvel's putting out, if not the best thing. So it's not like you're going to pick this up and be like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> you like Marvel Comics and you and you took the, a flyer on this. You're you're going to get the next issue. So what do you want to talk about for these issues? I have some things. I want I to know, we've already talked about so much. Uh, whatever you want to talk about. Oh, should we wrap it up? No, no. We can, we, we can talk 10, 15 well, more go, minutes. A couple of things I want to say, like um, 
Well, some, some these things are not necessarily like representative of bigger trends, but one of the things that's fun is uh, Claremont and Cochran put themselves in the comic at one point. Yes, that's right. Like Fire Lord, who is this former Herald of Galactus. He's one of the million characters that we see in this little so run. Many. I've only seen Fire Lord as a former Herald. I've never seen him as a Herald, but... But that's uh, the thing in Marvel Comics, but Galactus will give take somebody and give them superpowers to be his, like, superpowered, yeah. like, servant. And the Silver Surfer is the original yeah. one of these. Um, and then, then he'll fire them or whatever, but they get to keep their powers. And so there are these, like, superpower former Heralds yeah. running around the Marvel Universe that can show up. And they're always very Silver Surfer-ish, like, removed from their humanity. Yeah. Just they always have the power cosmic, away. which is a vague term of big, I can do anything big and rays. you can't stop me. Yeah. Big, powerful laser rays. Um, so Fire Lord shows up and he like is just beating the holy crap out of the X-Men. And um, they have a battle with him in Washington Square or Phoenix who can like go toe to toe with him. Yeah. Because she just has like also just vaguely huge powers. Yeah. Uh, Phoenix is kind of fighting him and he crashes into Washington square park and in Washington square park is Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum. And we know that because Chris is saying that then Dave, he hits the ground with a giant sound effect, which that is literally happening in that panel. Fire Lord hits the ground and it goes foom. Yeah. And then Dave, the Dave character says to the other guy, come on, Chris, let's get out of here. So I'm like, Oh, yeah. I guess that's Dave Cockrum and Chris Claremont <laughs> yeah, in the comic. Yeah, creating this comic that we're watching. They're describing a moment and it happens in front of them. It's yeah. kind of fun. It's very fun. This also ties in with Eric, the Rattic character. I still don't care anything about. He's like the uh, Earth agent for these Space Empire characters. <laughs> and I guess he lets Havoc and Polaris go at some point for, as far as I can tell, no reason. Like they're no longer under his thrall. Yeah, are they killed or are they? They're not, they're just not here. They're still around. Yeah, so. It's weird. Yeah, they they were part of the they were hypnotized and attacking the X-Men a couple issues ago and now they're they're just somewhere hanging out and we're not worried about them anymore. Yeah. Uh issue 106 is a fill-in issue. It's got a framing sequence where Professor X is like delirious. You know, he's yeah, this battle has shaken him and he remembers when he was having these nightmares initially, how weak he, it had made him. And it takes back a place back in the day when the new X-Men had just sort of formed. And it's a forgettable issue. I, yeah. I very much began skimming it. Um, it is like, this is the problem with Marvel. And this is a bi-monthly comic. So two months after the last issue, this issue comes out and it's not a new issue. Really? It's a fill-in yeah, issue. It's a fill-in issue. It's kind of a lame one. And it's what Marvel did at the time. Right. And it sort of makes sense that they did this is that they would make, because their comics were so late all the time, they started making fill-in issues for everything. Uh, they would just get a different writer and artist to do a, a evergreen story about these characters, and when they fell behind, they could insert it in. Yeah. Uh, this one had a little, uh, Claremont added a little framing sequence to make it sort of fit the story, which is commendable uh, to get keep some momentum going, but it is not a part of it. And I remember reading comics, and these were still a thing that happened, when we were first started reading and those issues stink largely they stink, yeah because it's not like they're giving it to the best creators and i think mantlo bill mantlo who wrote this one has done great comics he's did some he's his run on spectacular spider-man i think is pretty good and he had a created cloak and dagger cloak and dagger yeah so i think he's good but he's not like an a-list writer and he's i don't know who the artist is but the art is fine didn't bill so it's, it 
it's not like you're giving the fill-in issues to Claremont and Byrne who are going around and just doing like one-off of all the characters, but those would be like very good stories probably. Yeah, yeah. You'd be like, oh, this fill-in's better than the regular stuff. It seems like the fill-ins would be better. That's a chance to do like, let's follow like Nightcrawler to like an adventure on his own and do something we don't normally yeah. do or like, or like, let's just, let's change the pace up a little bit. Um, but yeah. it's also weird to do a flashback to the new X-Men who have only been around 10 issues, you know yeah. what I mean? And we're flashing back to an untold adventure of them. Well, based on Tom Reeveroot's blog, before this, they used to just do reprints. Like when they fell behind, they would just do full-on reprints. It would just be like a one-panel framing sequence and be like, hey, remember when we fought Galactus? And, and then let's put that issue in. This Kirby yeah. issue of flashback. And it's like, which, you know, there weren't collections. There wasn't digital comics. So for some people, it's like, oh, good. I never read this comic. But if you had, it's like, what a drag. Yeah, what a bummer. Um, uh, so and again, back- it's like now you have to, you're have you waiting again for the next new issue. So fill-ins, man, they really bum me out. Uh, Shooter gets rid of them largely or, or cuts them way down once he takes over. One of the many good things Shooter did uh, is he Sh- got... Shooter, the reviled yeah. former editor of Marvel Comics that Kevin and I think is great. Yeah, uh, and I think a lot of people think he's great. We're not alone in that, but he definitely is a divisive figure in Marvel's history. He seems to be an arrogant jerk personally, but a smart editor who had a lot of good things happen on his watch. Sure, and one of those things like getting your comic in on time, like yelling at people, do your work. That's a jerk, right? It's like, let let me leave me alone. I'm making art here. Yeah. Let me do it at my own pace. And he's like, no, get it done. We make more money if you get it done. Yeah. Um. I mean, that's a good thing. So him getting rid of that, getting rid of fill-ins like this is a good place. This is like, if this happens earlier, maybe it kills the comic, right? Um, Yeah, could be. So probably not. They still look cool. Anyway, that's 106. 106 is very forgettable. But then after that, they go to, we, we, we get the two issues of them in space, which is a pretty short, it's only two issues. It feels like 10 issues. They cram so much in there. Um. Let's talk about the first John Byrne issue, 108. So the arrival of John Byrne as the artist. One other thing before we talk about John Byrne is Wolverine steals the Timberwolf-esque character's costume. Fang, yeah. Yeah. For and I Fang believe face? that's because Cockrum, Cockrum wanted that to be Wolverine's new costume. Okay. So Cockrum was like, this costume's better. I, I don't like Wolverine's costume. It does look did... closer to the costume he ends up having. Uh, it does a little bit, it's right? The color but scheme. Like, yes, but that was supposed to be just his new costume going forward and burn didn't like it. So burn takes over the next issue. Uh, he, t- he rips it off and gets rid of it immediately. Interesting. Um, and burns, right. I think the, the original Wolverine costume is better than this Timberwolf version. The color scheme does come up later, but um, it's just a little too wolfy. Anyway, yeah. that's all I wanted to say about that, that costume. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about the burn issue. He, he does the last issue of what we covered, which is one Oh eight. So this is like the final climactic battle where the new X-Men have arrived in space to help the yes. princess defeat her evil emperor brother from achieving absolute power. At this point, they fought the Imperial Guard. The, the Star Jammers have shown up to help turn the tide. But the massive weapon that's going to erase every reality has yeah. been activated. I'm yes. not quite sure what the villain's plan is to use this other than he's using he maybe the, it's just out of his control. The villain has for some reason got 
wind of how there is a great power source and he assumes that he will be able to control that and then be like a god. But the truth, as we learned through Phoenix, is that if this power is unleashed, it will simply erase the, it'll, it'll destroy the galaxy and start a new one. Yeah. And at the end of the previous issue, though, the last Cockrum issue, uh, existence blinks out for like three seconds. And like yeah, Reed Richards is on the phone with a star core, which is, I think a Claremont thing. Another thing uh, we don't kinda, know what it is. They're like flipping out, just being like, why did everything cease to exist for three seconds? Yeah. Um, right. Which so is, like yeah. reality is already glitching just at, just yeah. at, just at this power source being sort of broached. And the power source is like the stars are aligning and there is a big crystal somewhere yeah. and the stars are aligning in a way that they will focus their energy on this crystal and thus either create or allow a sort of portal to this power. It's confusing, right? Like I don't mm-hmm. quite know what's happening, but what we do know is that Phoenix has become unbelievably powerful. Like as right. described here in X-Men, she seems to be one of the most powerful people in the Marvel universe right now. Though it's still new power to her. Cause she spent the first part of this adventure sort of like exhausted from bringing them here. Right. Uh, she has to like regain her power. She does regain it. Uh, there's also like these guardian, like, so there's this weird crystal thing that the X-Men have to do something with to turn off. I don't exactly understand this. Yeah. Uh, and there's guardians for this crystal. First, there's like a tiny little dude that's really cool looking that like beats them up. Right. They have a series of guards. Each one is more powerful than the last. And the first one's massively powerful. Yeah. The first one's tiny, but massively powerful. And the next one's huge and massive, more massively powerful. Yeah. Uh, and that's sort of fun. But then they do something like they enter the crystal somehow, and I don't quite understand how that happens. And then Phoenix sort of takes over from there. She like mind melds with it. Yeah, but they're already in it at that point. I don't quite understand how that happens. doesn't matter. Sometimes um, with these big like cosmic threats in comics, you know, the mm-hmm. threat of this cataclysmic event is what drives the story. And then this would happen in justice league. And then to like solve it is almost just like, they just decide that it's not a problem anymore. Yeah. Like Phoenix just goes in and she uses her life force. Fixes it. <laughs> I think the big thing is that she was about to be overwhelmed and she would have to kill herself to solve it. Mm-hmm. And instead she's able to draw life force from storm and Corsair. Yeah. And part and make them all weak but none of them will die. And it's kind of like teamwork defeats yeah. the thing. There's also in the caption, something about her absorbing maybe some life force from all the X-Men too, but that's just mentioned in captions. That's like a Stan Lee little thing where the caption is the art is that she just uses storm and Corsair. Right. Like there's a big panel, of like this Phoenix bird and orbs and spaceships flying through the air. Uh, uh, in that instance, she feels her power, the power of her friends sing within her. No, that's not it. Somewhere in here, I think it also mentions that she, as she falters, panics, uh, seizing her as she realizes what, that for all her awesome power, she still can't do it alone. And then suddenly she isn't alone. The spirits of the X-Men are with her, giving of themselves as Storm and Corsair gave. So it's just a throwaway caption. It's like, also all the X-Men sort of, which makes more sense that they'd all, they'd all happily give their life force to Jean to help stop this. Sure. But you don't see that happen. Uh, there's just like a bunch of bird imagery, fi- flaming bird imageries and orbs and, and suns. And then she takes them all home. <laughs> Isn't it kind of weird that usually in a, or not usually, I guess, but a lot of times in Marvel comics, when somebody gets a power, there is some sort of like breakdown of the powers and how it happened and what the limitations are. You know, like 
I'm Spider-Man. I have the proportional strength and speed of a spider. So therefore I can do this and I can do this. But Phoenix was like, she was a small time telekinetic telepath, Marvel girl, Mm -hmm. goes into the ocean and dies and is reborn a just, just super powerful person who can like fly and, and it's vaguely bird oriented, but we don't know why. And she manifests flame in the shape of a big Phoenix, but we don't, there's never, at least at this point, a reason given for that. Yeah. I don't think her powers are ever super well defined other than like any more than like silver surfers are right. Silver surfers shoots beams out of his hands, but his powers, (laughs) he also sometimes like changes matter and does other, like it's yeah. when they get cosmic level, Marvel just sort of shrugs and goes, and they can do what the story needs them to do. Yeah. And it's a neat balancing act. The good writers are good at it. And Claremont's pretty good at it where you don't read these stories and go, well, why'd they struggle with anything? They they do a thing where they find reasons to take the big guns out of play. Yeah. Like Phoenix is too tired because she transported them across the galaxy. So she can't fight. So they lose their biggest weapon. And then Storm is sometimes taken out for various reasons because yeah. Storm is also massively powerful. So you have to rely on like Nightcrawler and Colossus who are comparatively speaking less powerful. And I know we're jumping around a lot, but they're also starting to set up Wolverine being uh, uh, like durable and being able to heal. Because doesn't he get like thrown like um, off planet? Oh, yeah, that's very funny. When they get to the crystal and it's guarded by the first little guardian, the little the little guy who is massively powerful. Wolverine is like, all right, bub, I won't hurt you too much. And then this little alien cocks his fist back and the next panel is Wolverine being punched out of the atmosphere yeah, off the planet. And the star jammer ship has to go after them. The, the, the ship, which seems sentient and is sort of just mentioned offhand. There's like a talking ship that chases after him. We don't really get any details about that either. Claremont yeah. really jams this full of stuff, but that's like very funny. This like, and he's sort of fine. Like he's, he's pretty fine. He got punched out of the atmosphere and seems all right. Yeah. He gets some bandages. Also when this battle first started in the cockamish, he gets burned it's completely like, immolated, like totally yeah. set on fire. <laughs> uh, and at this point, he has not been established to have a healing, uh, any healing powers. <laughs> that's right. That's not established. It has not been said out loud. So he's just like, a, at this point, a tough guy with claws that come out of his skin. I mean, I, th- I think there's mentions of like, they're surprised he's okay when these things happen. Yeah. So I think it's being, uh, we're building towards it, but I don't think it's a big reveal. Anyway, yeah, like he gets hit. <laughs> um yeah. Uh, uh, would you believe he, <laughs> say, uh, he's one of ours. How's he doing? Would you believe escape velocity <laughs> and bless my circuits? He's still alive. So they're like sort of surprised whenever he's alive from these things. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think anyone has said that he's got healing powers. So, I mean, maybe it's retroactively. That's how they explain how he survives all this stuff. Uh, there's one point when another, like just sort of expansion of powers is nightcrawler rescues the star princess slash admiral she is the evil brother has the power to summon a soul drinker which is sort of like a doctor strange Mm -hmm. villain looking like demon and so the brother summons this this is just one of the million characters who is shows up in the story so a giant soul drinker demon shows up to drink the soul of our good guy star princess and nightcrawler teleports to her side, grabs her and teleports her away, which he's never done. Teleported. He's never teleported with somebody else. Yeah. And so, and he didn't know if he could do it and he kind of risks his life to try to do it. He does manage to do it, but now he's exhausted for a little Mm -hmm. while. Yeah. I mean, that's a very, that makes sense. Is like push like, Oh, he can only teleport himself. That's already pretty powerful. 
but it's not crazy to imagine he could take someone else with him. It's like when the invisible girl uh, in the early FF issues first started making other people invisible. She could do that also. Right. For a while, she couldn't make herself and somebody else invisible. I kind of like that limitation. I wish they kept that. Um, But like... She also couldn't make a force field if she was invisible. It was one Right, she could do one or the other. And it's like, sometimes it's like, well, she's been using it a while. Now she can do both. And it's like, yeah, that makes sense too. Uh, This guy now can teleport both. Um, This is interesting. They're also fighting uh, Star-Lord. Corsair? uh, uh, Not Star-Lord, a Fire Lord. Sorry. Uh, When they show back up Fire Lord, they're like, all right, X-Men, get ready for another fight. This guy we couldn't beat before. But luckily at this point, Fire Lord. Xavier has talked him down. Yeah. Yeah. But I love that. I love this sort of this beaten team being like, it's not over yet. Reform the line. That sort of thing. Uh, It is great to see the X-Men, how hard they fight. And, and, you know, the the trope is like they fight amongst themselves and then they line up to unite against the common enemy is really fun. There's also lots of that that hates them. Yeah. They also refer to how good friends they all are, even though we know they've known each other for like six issues or something like that. (laughs) Nightcrawler's like, ah, it makes me miss the old days in Germany when I was safe from cosmic threats such as, but I would never give up friends such as I have on the X-Men. And I'm like, why not? You, you barely know these guys. <laughs> it's very weird. It's very weird how bonded these characters become so quickly, but I mean, it works. That's what you're in it for though. You want the tribe, you know, they're like, yeah, yeah. The fraternity. Uh, uh, real quick. We probably should wrap up, but in this epic issue, there's also these, did you read the iron fist issues? Yes. That Claremont and John Byrne did. They're very, they're beautiful. John Byrne's art is really oh, great. God, it's in them. so good. Uh, and it's very silly. Like Iron Fist fights the X Men. But is this this thing where, it, when there were, this is pre Secret Wars, when there weren't events, characters didn't meet each other in, that easily. Like now it just feels like every superhero knows every other superhero. And it's really fun to read this and be like, oh, Iron Fist doesn't know the X Men and they don't know him. And it sort of makes sense that this fight could happen. Yeah. And they don't know their limitations and they don't know who's going to win this fight. Yeah. Uh, I kind of, I do miss that. I think it's hard to bring that back now where it's like, oh, we're meeting whoever for the first time. It's like, oh yeah, I saw you at the war of the realms before that one, uh, Venom's supervillain covered the entire New York city in symbiote slime. And it's like, everyone (laughs) has been on a team together now. Yeah. Every six months that they all get together and fight some, world threatening advice like you didn't have that here and characters did not know each other except for yeah. spider-man and the thing who knew everybody um anyway that's all i want to say about that it's beautiful burns art is real good yeah it's so it's terrific um his faces are weird his faces often look very similar they do there's a similarity to like them, reed like richards his- looks like nick fury looks like scott summers like they all kind of look alike but, but- I, I don't care about iron fist but like i'm reading this issue i'm like he makes iron fist look cool yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't care about the character so much. I wasn't, I'm not, I don't Burn feel also, the pull to like read more Iron Fist, but he just made it look so good. I'm like, why, why I'm, was I'm, Burn not moved to a higher tier comic immediately? Um, I feel like John Byrne, whether it's his idea or something, fun stuff happens when he's drawing, like Wolverine being punched off planet, like just kind of big, silly moment, not silly, but like yeah. outrageous moments are sort of, he seems to be a confident guy who like just makes big stuff happen in his stories and it's fun john byrne being on the at least at this time in comics if john byrne was on the book that was that meant it was going to be exciting also like the great artists i think and this is what ditko did not to make it all go back to ditko but it's like it's an action scene right these villains are punching each other that happens a lot 
But like, there's just shots that just visually are interesting of like Wolverine bursting through glass or something, or yeah. uh, uh, Colossus throwing him back up into the building that just like are more exciting than just the fight. Like they're, they're staged in a way that like I'm engaged with, even though it's just fisticuffs, I'm yeah. engaged with a visual. Visually dynamic fisticuffs. Where sometimes you read these comics and it's just like, like, I don't know, the, the, the fill-in issue, I couldn't tell you what happened in it. And I read it yesterday. But it's just like, also, oh, it was through. the second time that new X-Men fought the old X-Men in like a space of 12 issues. Yeah. But like even the, but the visuals of the fight were just sort of there. Like they weren't super cool. Like it's like, those are all interesting powers, but nothing that cool was happening. And it's, yeah. you know, and that's something Byrne does really well. And the best artists do. I mean, I think Byrne does that even better than the Cockrum. Cockrum designs really great costumes, but Byrne's really great at staging these. Byrne might be uh, a little bit better sequence. of a, plot manipulator like a like a storyteller yeah, yeah um, I mean, I, they often talk about this run is like burn and claremont co-plotted it yeah uh, um and I, that probably is a big part of why it was so good i'm so excited we're now into the burn issues i can't wait yeah uh so the next one will be 109 through something yeah uh, we'll figure it out uh, about five issues probably depending on where arcs end so I guess it's time for a break is that what you're telling me kevin yeah, you, got, take a- you have the time for a break tone in your voice yeah yeah we're well past that Hi, this is Kevin. I'm here with my brother, Will, and we are the hosts of Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics, our weekly podcast about comic books. And we want to hear from you. We have a slew of social media accounts, a slew. You can email us at screwitcomics at gmail.com or see us on Instagram at screwitcomics or tweet at us at screwitcomics. So tell us what you think of the comics you like or the comics you don't or things we've talked about on our episodes. Or send us some life advice. You can tell that we need it. Yes. Uh, We might read your message on a future episode of our show. So thanks. In advance from Screw It, we're just going to talk about comics from Campfire Media. All right, and we're back. Let's get some email. Okay, Will, do you want to start with our new segment or do you want to go into uh, answer a few emails first? What's our new segment? Screw it. We're just going to talk about war games. Oh, yeah, right. Okay, let's do our new segment. All right, great. So uh, as everyone knows, this podcast is slowly transforming into a war games podcast. <laughs> the uh, movie so, War Games, the Matthew Broderick, Ali Sheedy movie from 1980, yeah. I think. So, yeah, early 80s. I don't know exactly <laughs> when. We don't know that much about it. But we're just going to talk about war games. We, we mentioned it, I think, in two podcasts in a row. Uh-huh. Definitely in one podcast, we talked about it. Um, we got a couple emails about it, so let's do 83, it. 1983. Uh, the first one is from our brother, Brian. Oh, good. Who pitched new names for our War Games spinoff podcast. Okay. Do you want to play a podcast? Oh, nice. Falcon's Pod. Very good. Matthew Potterick. <laughs> That's really good. Podchua. Uh-huh. Uh, instead Joshua. of Joshua. Yeah. Ali Sheedy, the podcast. Okay, a little bit of a stretch, but good to get Ali in there. And the only winning move is to play our podcast. <laughs> All so, good. Uh, that's good. And then we got somebody on Twitter tweeted at us uh, this clip of a, a scene from the 1983 movie War Games, it says mm-hmm. here. Uh, his, so his tweet is, that's cool. He's responding to some image about the X-Men or Spider-Man. But how do you think that this corn is raw scene ended up making the final cut of War Games? Do you all know the backstory here? Which we did not. We did not know. There's a scene in War Games basically where Matthew Matthew Broderick goes up to his room and leaves his parents eating dinner and the dad 
slathers a bunch of butter on a piece of corn, takes a bite and goes, this corn is raw. And he also takes a piece of bread yeah. and puts butter on the bread and then uses that like a glove to like slather the butter onto the corn cup. Yeah. And then uh, the mom's like, oh yeah, it's raw corn is better for you or something. Yeah. It's crisp and juicy and you can taste all the nutrients. He's like, it's raw. And that's the scene, which feels weird. Irrelevant to the movie. Yeah. These parents barely matter to the movie. The only Uh, thing they matter story-wise is it's made clear that Matthew Broderick has kind of, they don't pay a lot of attention to him. Yeah. So he has been allowed to sort of like just get sucked into his computer life and like kind of, they seem benign and nice, but un like unaware that their son is a genius hacker. Right. And that he's like changing his grades uh, through hacking and not actually studying and getting in trouble with the government and stealing stuff. And they wouldn't know that's happening, which makes sense based on the parents we see, but they're not important to the story beyond that, how not important they are. Yes. Beyond the fact that they're not paying attention, they don't matter, but they're played by pretty good character actors. And I think like, Okay, my oh. legit answer to this question. Will's casting himself in War Games. I feel that if there is a reboot of War Games, uh, you might want a certain little dry-toned bald man to be the new father of the super hacker. Um, <laughs> be but it's like uh, John Badham, the director of War Games, who previously directed Saturday Night Fever. I think he's just into good characters, and it's like I think the thinking is if you have, you can have a nice, warm little character moment, even if it doesn't propel the story along it can be worth its screen time yeah i mean i agree with that especially characters that aren't going to get much screen time to make the parents have any resonance you got to give them a scene or two that that is more than just them talking about matthew broderick like from what i from what i've read a little bit about war games there was a lot of discussion over the tone of the movie like should it be a dark urgent thriller or should it be a lighthearted character piece it's a little both Mm-hmm. And there which are many works for it, which is what helps it work, I think. Yep. And, and there are a lot of moments of just little character moments, like much later in the movie, Dabney Coleman, who kind of plays the main bad guy who mm-hmm. is like given too much authority to his computer program and which allows it to like almost start a nuclear war. He has a little discussion. He like, he has a female assistant and at one point he takes gum out of his mouth and just like gives it to her to get rid of. Yeah. And then he walks away and he's kind of just handed gum to this woman. And it's weirdly like a low key, like kind of dick power move, like Dabney Coleman, yeah. the dick boss. And then after he leaves the screen, she kind of shrugs her shoulders and puts it in her mouth <laughs> and then like walks off. And I that's mean, also that. irrelevant to the story, but it's funny. Yeah. Do you know yeah. who else does this is the director of Die Hard, John McTiernan. Like there's lots of little moments in Die Hard that are just unnecessary to the story, but kind of warm little character moments. Do you remember the mm-hmm. guard in Die Hard who, when they take stations in the lobby, because yeah, yeah. the FBI is going to come in, one guy's looking over the candy. Yeah. And he just like, as he's like getting his gun ready for the FBI and the cops to come storming in and they're ready to shoot everybody. He like takes some candy and eats it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that scene. That's, that's, that's yeah. kind of, that, it's that philosophy of filmmaking. Yeah. I think that stuff adds a lot to me. I mean, Debbie Coleman is also a great character actor. Someone who's just like, just Instant put him dick. in the part and he will add a layer to it more than just being there. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, he's very fun in this movie. Um, just so like his, that, that, his, sort of the, dis, his sort of disbelief that Matthew Broderick is working alone. is so is funny. Such a great scene. It's like, why'd you buy tickets? Who, who, are, you, are, you who are you taking to Paris? Who are you leaving the country with? 
He's like, it was a joke. Doesn't yeah. believe him. It's so great. So great. Um, great movie. I mean, it's very yeah. dated and very of its time, but also I think holds up as really good. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, for now, that's the end of Screw It. We're just going to talk about war games and Screw It. We're just going to talk about Die Hard. Uh, <laughs> those segments are over. There's only two emails we've gotten so far. You, the <laughs> listeners, will decide how much more war games we talk about. Um, all right, let's move on to our email um, about our actual podcast. Yeah. Uh, I think I mentioned this before, but uh, just real quick. Jack Don Danville on Instagram is the one who messaged me. Uh, I've been listening to every episode since you started the Fantastic Four season. And of course, I went back to listen to the Spidey episodes as well. You guys make my Wednesdays so much better every week. I almost wrote an email suggesting you do Claremont's X-Men, which I reread the burn issues of recently and or Superior Spider-Man. But now it looks like I don't have to. Your podcast brings me great joy. And my girlfriend, who is not into comics at all, enjoys it too, because she says you guys are funny while not sounding like obnoxious podcasters. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice, I guess. Uh, I love that. I love that. Uh, We're not obnoxious podcasters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We have an email from Michael Mulligan. Some of these are so old. I don't remember what people are asking us anymore. Okay. Uh, 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 I have a feeling a few folks have told you about this week's new FF. Okay. Uh, No one else has mentioned this, Michael, but you've probably read it yourself. I have. Well, it's not. The backup story in FF this month might have been the best read and doom story I've ever read. I'll probably change my mind come the morning, but the way it all played out, Javier Rodriguez's art and splash pages and the surprising and touching request at the end was just incredible. I've been a huge Slot fan since his run on Spidey, but his run at FF while a little meandering at times was shaping up to be just as excellent and entertaining. I hope you enjoyed the story as much as I did. If not, sorry to waste your time. Have a lovely day. Regards, Mike Mulligan. So in this story, Will, Javier Rodriguez, first of all, is a great artist. Okay. Uh, you'd love his art. Um, he uh, There's a backup story in, in a recent FF issue, maybe the most recent one. Uh, it was when this email came in, at least, where uh, Reed tries to talk to doom when they're in college or something tries to challenge him to a game of offer to play chess with him or something and Mm -hmm. doom has no interest um you know your classic reads a nice guy and doom's a jerk (laughs) right uh because they're both geniuses so reads like we should be friends and doom's like no thank you yeah uh and then it like cuts forward in time to and i forget how it sets up but like doom challenges reed to like a sword duel (laughs) <laughs> and so they're sword fighting, but also playing chess. Like they're just shouting chess moves while they're sword fighting. <laughs> okay. Um, and at the end of it, uh, uh, somehow it ends in a way that like this whole thing was a setup so that doom, I think doom loses so that, he, but then he can says now Reed, you have to be my best man at my wedding. That's coming up <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. It's all a setup so that Reed will be his best man at a wedding. Uh, and it's very fun and silly, uh, and it looks amazing. Yeah. But it is very fun that Dr. Doom would be like, Reed Richards is my enemy, but also my best friend, I guess. Very, that's that's very superhero-y, right? The superhero yeah. and the villain are linked somehow. That, and that wedding is coming up soon. Doom is getting married. Okay. Anyway, it's great. Uh, FF issue 33, for anyone listening who wants to look into that. Okay. Freaky Friday Thought Experiment from Jameson Styles. Okay. Hello, Milksops. Who would you like to swap bodies with to gain their awesome life? And after you've done that, what would the podcast be like with those two people in your bodies? 
whose body would I switch into to have an awesome life? Mm-hmm. Billie Eilish. <laughs> okay, interesting. The pop singer, you know, I think sure. that'd be really fun. Um, she'd be really confused to be zapped into this body. She'd be really <laughs> bummed to, to see what's happening. So. <laughs> um, maybe I would do like uh, Mookie Betts. <laughs> That'd be fun. What do we great find to be, each other? It'd be great to be so good at a sport. I mean, yeah. I could also do like a basketball player. I would be just any like, I'd love to be LeBron James or. Uh, I'll say the argument for being impactful baseball player is like baseball is so like one at a time. Yeah. That it's weird when somebody is so good that they, even yeah. within their little, just like one at a time turns dominate. Yeah. Who's the guy in the angels? Who's like the best ever Mike, Mike. Trout. Mike yeah, Trout. like one of those people, just like every time they're up, they do something incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, truthfully, like being a basketball player would probably be more exciting because it's like when you're on the court. It's also athletically more impressive. Like, it, Yeah, uh, and to, to be like the best basketball player, to be like, uh, um, you know, LeBron or Anthony Davis, these guys are so good. They like just change the sport mm-hmm. when they're on the court. And like they're scoring like 40 points a game and just like yeah. they are making or breaking a game. But I just like baseball more, so I'm going to choose Mookie Betts. Just to okay. be a great outfielder, making those great catches and still able to hit home runs, it just seems like whenever I hit a home run, I'd be like, Oh my God, I did it again. <laughs> uh, I guess I have to hope I get some of their brain power that they use for this sport. Otherwise all of a sudden Mookie Betts is going to get way worse. Like, like he's still in shape, but he is misjudging every ball. Out there. <laughs> he's got his instincts are terrible. He, he looked afraid of that last pop up. He said, yikes. <laughs> um, so then how would podcast, Billy Eilish and Mookie Betts do in our podcast? I think Mookie would do great. I think Billy would too. I think I think probably be better. Mookie probably hasn't read a ton of comics, but I think he is a he's got a fun energy, uh, and I think he'd have a black. I mean, I think he'd be mad to be trapped oh, yeah. in my body. Of course, they would both be they both be furious. But I think he'd enjoy spending time with my kid, and my wife would uh, uh, be pleasant. He'd be, he would have a good time. He just would be mad that he didn't have his body. I mean, I think Billy would be almost walking distance from her home when she switches bodies with me, so she wouldn't be too mad about that. Um, She's yeah. got good taste. I think she'd read the X-Men and have some good takes. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be really interested in what Mookie would say about uh, Me too. I want to hear. Yeah. I'd be, it'd be a better, it'd be a better podcast. It, yeah. Thanks All our lives lot, would be Jameson. better. Oh boy. Um, let's see. We got Benjamin Ordung, frequent emailer. Yes. Uh, good day, brothers. Sop. Nice. Uh, uh, long-time listener and lover of your podcast. I stopped a long reading collecting of Spider-Man comics that extended 20 plus years and thousands of dollars due to my second child's birth uh, and financial responsibilities. I slogged through the good and the crap, but always held on knowing that eventually it would get better. Your latest season with the superior Spider-Man has informed me that I stopped three issues from a great run. Now I'm bummed. It brings to mind a double question for you regarding change and status quo. And before we get to that, I'd say I was enjoying it three issues before superior Spider-Man. So yeah. his mileage might, might, if he wasn't enjoying slots run before this, uh, it's he probably might, still he might good. Not like it. Yeah. It's still good to drop it. I think when you did. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah. Um, I also will drop a comment. I drop Spider-Man constantly. I'll stop reading it and then pick it up and call, you know, yeah, you can always go in and fill in the gaps if you want to. Yeah. So, when you're in it for the long haul, like Kevin, you you know it's no big deal to drop a title for even two years. I don't get. I, like, I'm on this spider. The amazing spider talk has a Slack channel that I go on uh, and talk to people about comics. And there's a lot of people there who are completists who want to read every single issue of Amazing Spider-Man. And I'm like, I'm not reading it right now. I'm sort of just like, 
yeah, it's not good. I stopped reading it. Yeah. I'll go back and read it on Marvel Unlimited at some point, but I wasn't enjoying it. And I've got too many things I want to read. Yeah. Uh, some of them love it. I don't like it. So it's yeah, the run yeah. is not for you. Device of always. Anyway, uh, Benjamin goes on. Now with decades of comics under my belt, I rarely ever get mad at change because everyone or everyone or everything returns to its original, whether to a reboot or a storyline. But what if it didn't? Are there any major character changes that you would have liked to have seen become permanent or at least drawn out? Two years of Peter Parker with six arms, the spider armor that just appeared in one issue, Wolverine Farrell after his adamantium ripped out, the new Fantastic Four with Spider-Man, Hulk, Wolverine, and Ghost Rider, Blue and Red Superman, Punisher as an Angel, and many more. Uh, so is there a big status quo shift that you liked and where sad got reset? Well, do you, can you think of anything like that? I mean, it would have been interesting if the thing never returned to the FF, that would have been a really bold thing. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't, uh, I mean, it, was, it was relatively extended, but yeah, if he never went back, that'd be crazy. It seems like it'd be, at some, you'd be sad about it more. I think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. personally, I think I would be. This is one, there weren't too many of these sea changes that I was like present for, like the black costume, you know, like I yeah. had a, that felt, I really like how it played out. But if I mean, like, if I looked at the comics now and the thing still wasn't on the FF, I'd be like, what are you doing? Yeah. But I guess if it was still She-Hulk, it would still work pretty good. It's nice to have two women and two men on the team. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I don't know how much, I think the things wouldn't be, would be even less interesting to people now. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I wish Peter and Mary Jane stayed married. I don't. I've I've flipped on that completely. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that got undone. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I can't think of anything because to me, it's uh, it often comes down. To it's like these characters tend to settle on a status quo that works for a lot of people, and it's like if you change it too far from that, you know, it's like like they brought Bucky back, and it's like oh that worked. So now Bucky's just back as the Winter Soldier. Yeah. But if it didn't work, he'd be dead again. Right. Because right. like that's what worked for yeah. so long. And like that's a part of the character. So I can't really think of anything that I uh that I'm mad. Like even like the Justice League, like, I love Justice League International, and it was fun to have it sort of be like the C list characters. Yeah. That were better as a team than a separate. But the sa- same sense, it's like it was great when they brought the seven big guns back together too. Yeah. So uh my I don't I don't have a good answer to that. No, it's my answer. Okay. <laughs> Second question. Not sure if you remember the Spider-Man foes Sticks and Stone. I do not. I do not. Amazing Spider-Man 309 and 376. Sticks had rotting touch with crazy long fingers and Stone had crazy guns mounted to his soldiers, his shoulders, but no powers. Uh, my brother recently gave me a Deadpool Spider-Man series and they were in an issue. However, totally redone and unrecognizable. Anyone, villain or superhero, that you think needs a complete upgrade in the real Marvel universe versus alternate worlds? Perhaps the Enforcers get actual powers? Just a thought. Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work, and I look forward to more easy listening. Uh, Sticks and Stone is a good example of, like, new characters that got created that who cares about them? Right. Not as good as anything that came before. What are we being asked? How would we just upgrade a character? Yeah, is there characters that you think there's potential, but this need to be sort of overhauled. I think the enforcers would be a great story. I don't think changing their powers is the way to do it. It's just like, give them real personalities. Yeah. Uh, uh, powers would do. kind of ruin them. Yeah. It's good if they have dumb powers. And if that's the point. Um, I, I kind of wish Hobgoblin, this is also not a revamp really, but like Hobgoblin, like the real Hobgoblin. So, uh, I, I think 
to make Green Goblin look good and make Hobgoblin look secondary to him, it's just sort of put on the back burner constantly. And I'd like him just to be a real threat that's out there at all times. Mm-hmm. He was so cool when done right. Yeah. Also, I think Jack-O-Lantern looks cool and they keep trying different things with him. It's a Dicko design. Jack-O-Lantern looks cool to me. Yeah, I don't have enough knowledge here to, to give a good answer. Uh, all my stuff is from like the 80s, so I don't know. Sorry, Benjamin. Sorry, Benjamin. You're smarter than us. Uh, this is from Alan Coplin. Frank Miller, Spectacular Spider-Man is what the subject is. Uh, Dear Milk Sops, I know I wrote you recently, just felt like I needed to let you know about these two amazing issues of Spectacular Spider-Man 27 and 28 that are even more spectacular than most amazing Spider-Man issues at the time. So mm-hmm. Alan is a guy who's been like reading through uh, all the Spider-Man comics, I think, if not everything. Okay. Uh, picture this, Spectacular Spider-Man issue 26. We're in the middle of a multi-issue arc in which a mysterious figure called Carrion is after Peter Parker. For some reason, he goes to the Magia as a... Uh, mercenary for hire to capture spider-man even though we soon find out he's the surviving clone of professor miles warren oh comic books uh comma the jackal equipped with pretty godlike death powers and with no need of money or anything the magia could give him the mysterious leader of the magia at the time is revealed to be some b-tier villain named the masked marauder his biggest asset is the indestructible Tri-Man, a super corny look. This is so confusing. A super corny looking android that turns from a silver surfer lookalike into a bird droid and finally into a bomb droid. His big plan is to blackmail the mayor of New York into burning the city, the whole city of New York, or turning the city of New York over to him. Uh, the mass marauder has big plans for park reconstruction or his thoughts about charter school situations. Who knows what his platform is? I'd really look forward to seeing who was put on the city council. In issue 26, Spider-Man gets blinded by uh, the Marauder's optic blast and Daredevil steps in to help him out. Cut to issue 27. All the silliness is overshadowed by this mini arc where Daredevil helps Spidey get accustomed to being blind without revealing that he himself was blind. Spidey starts relying more on his spider sense and Daredevil manages Spidey's despair to keep his confidence up. Halfway through this issue, stunned by the beautiful art and change in tone, I go back to check who the artist is, and it turns out to be none other than superhero comics newbie Frank Miller, guesting for regular Jim Mooney. Uh, I want to look it up, and apparently, I went to look it up, and apparently these issues are what made Miller interested in working on Daredevil, as he thought there would be a lot of interesting art choices to make a blind, to make with a blind superhero. The dynamic between Dee Dee and Spidey, Spidey adapting to his grief at losing a sight and still having to save the day, it just makes a couple of incredible issues I highly recommend. Uh, thanks for reading and thanks for making great podcasts. Love all the Spidey content. Yeah, I've never read those issues. Sounds good. Yeah, I mean, uh, Frank Miller showing up, John Byrne showing up, uh, Walt Simonson. These guys changed Marvel Comics. We talk about it all the time. Yeah, it was incredible. Um, 80s superhero comics is like 60s rock and roll. It's just amazing how many milestone creators showed up young and good. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's one. Uh whoops uh somebody sent me an email asking for where where is it nope that's not it sorry uh can't find it so (laughs) somebody asked me for recommendations of um spidey collected editions here we go and uh i sent to him I said, just get these epic collections that exist now. I think they're great. They cover, they have a ton of issues in them and you get like a real taste. Will and I both have the great power and great responsibility collections that cover 
Ditko. the entire Ditko era. Uh, Ramita's first one is called Spider-Man No More. That's really okay. good. Uh, Craven's Last Hunt. There's a collection that is Craven's Last Hunt and some of the stuff before and after that. That's really good. The, there's a Venom volume, which is like the first arc with Venom with Todd McFarlane art. That's really great. Um, and then some other stuff I think is good, like Chip Zdarsky just had a run. That's really good on Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man. He did a book called Spider-Man Life Story that I think people would enjoy. Spider-Man Blue is like a story about Gwen Stacy, basically, with Tim Sale art that is just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Slot's Spider-Verse is a fun storyline if you can get that collection. Uh, Kurt Busaic's Untold Tales of Spider-Man is a personal favorite of mine. And recently there's a comic called Spidey by Robbie Thompson uh, that is also sort of like teenage Spider-Man stories that is really good. So that's what I recommended to Joseph Connolly. And that's now been recommended to all of you. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, Thomas Fransom emails. Hi, Will and Kevin. I too have overlooked Claremont's X-Men for most of my comic reading career. I only just started reading it recently after you guys started your intermittent coverage of it. Shockingly, Claremont's X-Men is good. Thanks for getting me to finally read the seminal run. Uh, it seems like Marvel had a lot of books that were originally pretty bad that later became incredible. X-Men or Daredevil. Do you think that phenomenon can still happen in modern comics or do bad books just get canceled too quickly before they have a chance to get turned around? Thanks. Um, I think it is tougher now. Uh, yeah. the, fact that, the fact that X-Men was still coming out with reprints yeah. made it like ripe for reinvention and that daredevil was still coming out when like uh uh i don't know who was on before frank miller but um whoever the writer was that frank miller drew with like they started revamping it even there right making it more of a noir book right but like you need to have a book that's out that's not selling well or even like when walt simonson came on thor it wasn't that big a book right Uh, but it was still coming out because it was like you can't cancel thor they had sentimental attachment to the Kirby titles, I think. So if yeah. Kirby had founded it, they were like inclined to try to make it work. Yeah, but stuff gets canceled now after like a year. If it did. Like if Miss Marvel didn't work, it would have been canceled. Right. Uh, which doesn't give it a chance to like really truly be reinvented. It can still happen, but it'll happen like as a uh, um, almost like a relaunch. Like let's say Miles Morales just didn't work. Okay. Um, it would have gotten canceled, but it doesn't mean like two years later, someone couldn't start a new Miles Morales comic, with like a new take that would work. Right. Um, so it can still happen. I think it's harder though. Like if you have a bad comic that's coming out, you're like hoping that someone takes it over and tries something. Yeah. Um, and there's a, like a real opportunity there. I think that's tougher. I think that's tougher to do. Um, I wish I wish only good things would happen all the time. Yeah. Uh, Michael Mulligan. I think we had another one. We had another uh, one from him earlier. Yeah. So he sent us, and I'm just a long, long one, but I'm going to skim a little bit of it. He has a comic recommendation that is something I have not read well. Okay. Dragon Ball Z. Okay. I know what you're thinking. No, right? <laughs> you're thinking, no way, not going to do it. However, the first saga of Dragon Ball Z is one of the best shonen mangas ever written, if not the best. Hmm. Uh, Shonen mangas are what would happen if you asked a Japanese writer to create a superhero book, but didn't explain to him what a superhero book is. Okay. The parallels between Western and Eastern comics are incredibly interesting. It could be worth an entire season of focus alone. But the book that I believe you'd both like the most is the first saga of Dragon Ball Z. Uh, It was written entirely drawn. It was written and drawn entirely by one man, Akira Toriyama. 
His art is probably what most people think of when they hear the word anime. And his work more or less started an entire genre in Japan. Dragon Ball began to run in 84 and draws on a lot of Asian and Pacific Islander culture, fairy tales, religions, philosophies. It started out as mostly comedic adventure story about a young boy and his friends. But over the course of the story, the boy grows up. And by the end of Dragon Ball, he's a young man and about to get married. While this is fun and enjoyable, none of it is necessary to read and enjoy Dragon Ball Z. Okay, I thought that was Dragon Ball Z. That's just Dragon Ball. In America, we were more or less started with Dragon Ball Z. So most English-speaking fans started from the same place you guys would be. Uh, Because for as good as Dragon Ball is, its sequel series, DBZ, is way better. The story picks up five years after the events of Dragon Ball. Goku is now married with a young son and on his way to visit his friends for the first time in years. Coincidentally, an alien crashes into Earth the, the very same day and is looking high and low for someone called Kakarot. From this point forward, the action adventure never stops. Each chapter ends on an exciting cliffhanger that makes it very tough to put down. Despite being eight volumes long, my apologies, I still believe it's fairly breezy read that will only take a few days, weeks to go through. My son is about to be five, and he and I have been reading and rereading Dragon Ball Z for a few years now. Kevin, the stories you share about your son make it sound like he'd really be into this as well. DBZ runs for a long time, and as much as I love the book and cartoon, it overstays its welcome by the end. But the first saga, the Friaza saga, which I provided Amazon links to below if you're interested. Uh, it talks about some other ways to get it. It's one of the best action adventure comics I've ever read. And I think you'd both really enjoy it and have a ton to talk about, especially if neither of you is too familiar with the property. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to toss this out there. Thank you for making this consistently excellent show as well being kind of funny. <laughs> um, our fan and non-Patreon backer, Mike Mulligan. It just yeah. makes me want to read it. It's a good sell. Yeah, I've never read any real uh, manga comics. Yeah. Uh, it feels unwieldy. But, um, it was intimidating to get into something when you know there's just a million pages of it. Yeah, but now maybe I'll get the first volume of Dragon Ball Z and try it out. Yeah. I just watched an anime. Um, uh, I don't know too much about anime or manga, but I just watched the anime series Steins Gate, which was based on a video game, although the video game was something called a visual novel where it's, broadly a choose your own adventure type of thing. Yeah. Um, and it was a really fun series to watch. Um, Sci-fi adventure. Yeah. I watched the I, first I don't know too much um, anime manga stuff. Uh, uh, it, what's that? Uh, I forget what it's called now. Attack of the Titans or something. There's a one of the giants. No, that's oh. not it. There's one I just watched uh, maybe in the last year. I watched the first couple episodes of it's about like giant monsters. Hmm. A, like a, like a city that is surrounded by like literal giants, like zombie giants. Okay. Uh, and uh, it's supposed to be really good. I watched the first couple of episodes and it was, it was pretty good, but I, I just didn't keep watching it. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, people, anybody who knows it will know what I'm talking about, even though I, I'm giving, I'm mangling the name maybe. Uh, Robert Christ emailed us a while back asking for us to tell him our favorite covers. And I don't really have favorite covers. But maybe you do. Yeah, well. I mean, just I just the iconic ones. It's not even necessarily the best covers, but I get sentimentally attached to like mm-hmm. Amazing Fantasy fifteen or Amazing Spider Man thirty three. Yeah. Um. I. You know, if it's not like a story that becomes important to me, I sort of forget the covers a lot. Yeah. Covers are sort of forgettable to me. It's more of like, oh, this is a comic I love, and I remember the cover of it. Yeah. Uh, more than anything else. So. Yeah. Um. It's some of, yeah, the, not some of the Watchmen covers are iconic to me. And yeah, we've talked about that Marvel's cover with giant man stepping over the camera. Yeah. And that's great. But it's also because I liked that comic book. Yeah. 
and like is you associate it with the event of discovering that comic. Yeah. Uh, he lists some of his favorites, um, which include amazing Spider-Man 33. Good on you. Uh, a lot of star, uh, star Wars comics for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then some Jim Lee X-Men comics. And yeah, I just, uh, even like the great artists that I've followed, like, I don't, I don't know, even like Walt Simonson's Thor, because I read them as a collection. I don't, other than like the first cover, I don't know if I could tell you any of them. The first cover being where Beta Ray, uh, Bill. Beta Ray Bill is like smashing the logo. Yeah. Which is a great cover. Yeah. So sorry, Robert. Uh, I don't have good suggestions for you. We're, we're bad at answering some of these We're dummies. Questions. We're dummies sometimes. Uh, Mike Santagata asked, uh, 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 says, I recently finished Daredevil season three and inspired me to read Daredevil comics. I read all of Frank Miller stuff, the Kevin Smith run, and I've just started the Brian Michael Bendis stuff. It's all great. Personally, I think the Kevin Smith stuff is a little overrated. Didn't really like the way he treated Karen before killing her and Daredevil trying to murder a baby. Isn't really explained by saying he was drugged. Uh, anyway, my question for you is, have you guys watched the Daredevil TV show? If so, I'd love your thoughts on it. I think it's the best Marvel live action show. Really love season three. And when I read Miller's stuff, I got to do, uh, he has the Leonardo DiCaprio meme here. Uh, I got to do the Leonardo DiCaprio meme where I noticed something that the show took from his run. Um, so he wants to know what our thoughts are on the Daredevil series if we watched it. Um, I watched the first season and thought it was on the good side of fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoyed it. And then I started watching the second season and I got bored and stopped. I just, it was moving too slowly and I just didn't care anymore. Even though Punisher seemed like a good character, I think Electra showed up and that was exciting, but I just, I don't know. The episodes are boring. The first season almost was too boring, but like D'Onofrio's portrayal of the Kingpin was really fun. And there were some of those like old boy inspired fight sequences that were like yeah. really exciting. And, um, I don't know what, I don't know. I, I, I kind of, and I watched a couple episodes of Jennifer Jones. I never watched any of the iron fist, Jessica, that, like, Jones. Little, uh, Jessica Jones, um, that little batch of, um, Marvel stuff I thought was okay. I was glad that it wasn't like a joke and it seemed to look good, but I was never seriously grabbed the recent batch that's coming out on, um, Disney plus is way, uh, better. Um, and kind of puts it to shame, like WandaVision and Falcon and uh, Winter Soldier and Loki, I think. Kevin, yeah. what do you think? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm the same as you. I didn't even make it quite as far as you. I, I I never tried Daredevil season two. I did finish season one, but it felt like work by the end, which is crazy because the first few episodes, I was like, this is great. And then I just like each episode, I was like, I care less and less and less. And I was like, I got to finish this because it's a comic book TV show. Yeah. And then I didn't make it through Jessica Jones, which people love. Yeah. People love that season. I made about halfway and I was like, I'm just not, I just, it's too slow. It just, it felt slow, right? Like it just like stuff doesn't happen fast enough. You know what a pretty good out of the cloak and dagger on free form. I made it about halfway through that season. And that was all, that was similar. It was like good. It was interesting. It looked good. It was made well, but it just, I can't explain it. It didn't feel like enough. I wasn't interested to see another one. I watched the first three episodes of Runaways on uh, Freeform as well, I think, or Hulu or whatever it was on. Yeah. Um, and I love Runaways, but I couldn't get through it. I was like, Ugh, nothing is happening. It just felt like they still didn't, ha- had any, the story hadn't even started yet. We hadn't even gotten through issue one of the comic. And I was yeah. just like, I guess I just, this isn't working for me. I was nervous when Disney Plus started that it would be more of the same. Uh, and it's been great. The first episode of Loki was so fun that uh, 
I'm like, Ooh, I can't wait for the, I'm like the first episode of Loki aired. And I was like, I'm sad. There's only five more left versus like daredevil where I was like, I guess I got to watch the last five or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, I'm glad people love it. People it's really interesting do, when superhero stuff isn't like, uh, the boys, not a Marvel property, uh, the series on Amazon prime. Mm-hmm. I thought it was fun right away. Like I couldn't wait to see the next episode of the boys. Yeah. I know it's a yeah. totally different like tone and stuff like that, but it just this just it being a superhero genre is not enough to hook me. It's and yeah, I it's hard for me to summarize what makes something good or bad. But some the of these things I surprisingly can't, great. Yeah, I can't. Some of these I really can't wait to watch the next episode. And some of them are kind of a bit more laborious. I don't know. I don't know. I uh, uh, I really loved the first season of The Flash on CW, uh, which is now. Yeah, a I watched. The, I watched the first season of the eighty nine or something. They're up to now. Uh, but I watched, yeah. I was watching all those CW shows for a while and then they got so repetitious and sort of dumb and just sort of like, God, it, it almost like nothing was happening in the opposite way of the Netflix shows where like tons of mm-hmm. stuff was happening, but nothing really mattered. Uh, that I was just sort of, I guess I don't care anymore. And I stopped watching them all. But that first season of the flash, I think was a blast in a way that when everyone was loving daredevil, I was like, I don't care. You can watch daredevil and Luke cage and the defenders. Give me this flash season. It was so fun and so comic booky in the best way possible. Yeah, uh, that I loved it. Though eventually I lost interest. Uh, we got time for one more, I think. Will. Okay. You, you up for it? Yes. Got a lot of emails. We have to do another one of these soon. Uh, 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 Stuart Watson, who's emailed us before, emails, "Dear brother, waits waste sops." Nice. Uh, in covering Superior Spider-Man, you justly poke fun of the angered and disappointed fan readers who believed Peter Parker to be forever dead. Now a seasoned middle-aged comic book reader, I share your perspective, but I can remember a time when I was similarly, similarly an aggrieved, naive reader. As a grade schooler in the 80s, I read a weird, mostly forgotten era of the Defenders. At the time, they were basically a place for X-Men runoff. The team was Beast, Iceman, Angel, Valkyrie, Moondragon, and Gargoyle. After an issue where they ruined Beast's life, taking away his love and career and ending on a full page of him heaped in a chair, emotionally defeated, I was in tears. It is actually the only time I wrote a letter into Marvel Comics. I complained, how they, how could they treat Beast this way? In hindsight, I see how I was a rube to believe that this was a new and forever status quo and how the nature of serial narrative requires obstacles and ups and downs in the characters. Can either of you remember a time before your meta-level awareness? A time where you were emotionally invested in a comic book or other media property and you were angered or upset at how the writers were treating a beloved character. Thanks. Big fan, Stuart. I cannot remember feeling this way. Um, yeah, me neither. I, uh, um, I'm sorry that that's a boring answer. I, uh, I just, I mean, I would be, I would be more or less interested in a story based on something that happened mm-hmm. or not. And, uh, I would move away from them, but I never remember being like mad. Um, I the closest I didn't really love that they brought Phoenix back. Uh, I remember when they brought Phoenix back, that seemed like kind of a bummer to me. Like the mm-hmm. the gravity of her death was interesting, and undoing it, I was mildly like, "Ah, oh, that's a bummer." But I didn't care that much. Yeah. It, it, some of it I wonder is because of, especially with comics that we started with, like the '60s comics. And that like by just the nature of reading the 80s comics, it's like, oh, everything's changed anyway. Yeah. It just gave it all sort of a feeling of uh, 
non-permanence, right? Like, yeah. Oh yeah. He's not, he's like, when we started reading Spider-Man comics, Spider-Man was not talking to Aunt May. He was living on his own. He had a black costume. He was dating the black cat. It felt like a different character almost in some ways, but it clearly was Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Um, that I didn't go, oh, how could you, how could you change all these things? I was just like, yeah, things constantly change. Uh, it's more just like some, some writers and artists have a style that I like and some don't. And if I don't, yeah. I just don't read them. Like I remember reading Power Pack for a long time um, and Power Pack was really great when it first started and it got um, progressively worse. And then there was a certain point where the comic was just awful. Yeah. But I don't remember being mad. I remember being like, the they don't get Power Pack anymore is what I felt like. These writers and or editors or publisher have lost what made this character's good. So I stopped reading it. Yeah. Because uh, like by that point, I think Alex was turning into a horse creature. Uh, <laughs> I'm not joking with that. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. And the powers had all switched around and changed. And it was just sort of like, it just became like this sort of, uh, I think it was trying to be like an X-Men comic in a bad and the worst way possible. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that isn't what this comic was. And I remember I stopped reading it. And then after the comic got canceled, uh, the original creators, Louise Simonson and June Brigman came back and did like a one shot holiday special that sort of just fixed to the characters. Yeah. And I bought that and read it, but it wasn't like I read that and went, Oh good. They fixed the characters now because the comic was still canceled at that point. Yeah. I still read it. I was like, I enjoyed this comic because it was by people who told good stories with power pack more than I needed my character fixed. Yeah. Um, you know, if DC had killed Nightwing uh, when they kept threatening to do it, I would have been bummed. But also I would have been like, he's coming back. I don't know. Yeah. I just, uh, it's hard to get attached to this stuff. It, it's more like, oh, Batman Forever is a bad Batman movie. Oh, well, I'll wait till they make good ones. Yeah, like again. the bad stuff gets forgotten. Like the bad stuff yeah. just fades. Like the clone saga of the early 90s Spider-Man was dumb and it didn't work. And so it's gone now. It's gone. Yeah. Like it just... The, I remember. <laughs> here's a dumb thing that I think of, in our in the Sandman comic book issue, mm-hmm. uh, with Hob, the man who lives forever, and Sandman sure, yeah. visits him once a century. Um, one of those conversations, Hob tells Sandman, "You know, they're doing a version of Hamlet now, where Hamlet lives, like they're doing a happy ending Hamlet, and that's all the rage." And um, Sandman goes, "Eh." the great stories always return to their proper form. That's just temporary. Like Sandman is unbothered. He's got yeah. the centuries long view. Um, and as I was like, yeah, it's true. Like when, when, when stuff gets bent out of shape, it either works like venom and it stays or it doesn't work and it goes away. It just, it just, just doesn't stick. Right. If somebody like reboots a movie or does like a retelling uh, uh, of a movie and it's better, then it's better. And, if and it that, that impacts like Robert Downey's Jr. portrayal of Tony Stark became Tony Stark's personality. Yeah. It was somewhat informed by the Playboy millionaire of the comics, but it was way more Robert Downey Jr. energy than Tony yeah. Stark. And that worked, right? Everyone's like, oh, this is Tony Stark. This is it. Yeah. Uh, so it's just, I don't know. And maybe it, maybe it's, uh, we're like just emotionally repressed enough that we just don't get as invested. Like we're not entitled enough to make demands. We're, we're beta pushovers. We're milk subs. Maybe we'd be better human beings in society. If like we were that affected by things. Yeah. Instead we shrug our shoulders and we're like, eh, not for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my wife is very funny. Cause she'll watch movies and stuff. Like when we watched, we watched, I think it was Iron Man three or whatever. Like in the middle of that movie, 
Iron Man's really being put through the ringer. And she's just like, oh, this is, I hate this. This is terrible. And then by the end, she was enjoying the movie. And I was like, you know that this is the arc of movies, right? Like <laughs> the hero gets beaten in the middle and has yeah. to come back and win. Like that's just the arc of every one of these movies. But she just wanted Iron Man to sort of just be happy from beginning to end of the movie. <laughs> uh, and it's a very funny reaction, but like, yeah. Um, I mean, that's the extreme on the other direction, maybe. Um, yeah. I don't know. It, it just, I, 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 I think we are the abnormal ones here. I think most people are at least at some point really affected by it's this It's weird stuff. that we're invested enough to care about these things for decades, but not enough to get actually upset when we don't like yeah. it. Uh, anyway, we still have a ton of emails. So we'll be doing another one of these in two weeks. So yeah. uh, if you want to get in there, uh, email us at screwitcomics at gmail.com. Yeah, we also have a Twitter account, screwitcomics, and a... Um... Instagram account, Screw It Comics. Please follow us. And uh, we'll see you next episode when we go over Superior Spider-Man. Bye. Bye. Screw it. Screw it. We're just going Hi, Adam Peacock from My Neighbors Are Dead here. Each week on My Neighbors Are Dead, I talk to the tertiary characters real and imagined from your favorite horror films. But this summer, we're doing something different. We are taking you to the northern woods of Michigan, all the way up to Whitlow Lake, to bring you the original tale of the My Neighbors Are Dead Summer Camp Massacre. We're bringing back some fan favorites of the show as we try to piece together through interviews with survivors, witnesses, and with any luck, the killer Chad himself. We're going to try to piece together exactly what the hell happened up there at Camp Whitlow Lake. It starts June 22nd and it runs all summer long. That's the My Neighbors Are Dead Summer Camp Massacre. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Campfire.